0: Please note that the Talking Newspaper telephone contact number is changing. From the 1st of March, the telephone number to reach Chester and Flintshire Talking Newspaper will be 07852 555 That is 07852 555 When you call this number you can leave a message giving your contact details and one of us will call you back. Thank you.
1: And welcome to the combined edition of the Chester and Flincher Talking Newspaper for the week ending Friday the 23rd of February. This is Juliet Shestack. Firstly, apologies for my rather croaky voice. It's a bit of a case of laryngitis and therefore this time uh, Joe is going to help us out along with Tadge in reading some of the stories today. February has had its fair share of special days to mark with Shrove Tuesday or Pancake Day, Ash Wednesday and Valentine's Day all having been celebrated so far. You may also have noticed that the media notes many other special days across the year, such as World Book Day, World Marriage Day, and Random Acts of Kindness Day. On further investigation, it turns out that every day has now been designated at least one special commemoration, and those in February represent quite a mix. Coming up this week, for example, we have Walking the Dog Day, International Sword Swallowers Day, Polar Bear Day, Chocolate Souffle Day, and Tooth Fairy Day. While on February the 29th, specific to the UK, there is National Toast Day. Amongst these light-hearted subjects, there are of course many more serious awareness days medical conditions and important charities across the month, as well as others such as No One Eats Alone Day and Send a Card to a Friend Day, that simply sound like excellent ideas for any time of year. Sunrise on Friday, aka National Dog Biscuit Day, this week, is at 7.12am, with sunset at 5.37pm. And now on with the news. Go ahead for new plans to bulldoze Ellesmere Port Council offices with underground bunker. Fresh plans to demolish the former Ellesmere Port Council offices, which include an underground bunker, have been given the green light. Previously, a planning application submitted by Cheshire West and Chester Council to knock down the now-empty Civic Way building was approved back in 2020. However, As part of the planning consent, the work needed to be started within a three-year period, which expired back in May last year. As a result, the local authority lodged new plans to bulldoze the dated building and remove the underground bunker, as well as carrying out remediation works and engineering operations to level the town centre site. These plans have now been rubber-stamped. In her report, Council case officer Emily Yates said In terms of the loss of the office space, this has in effect been replaced by the new council offices, the portal, further along. With regard to the car parking, the proposal does not look to displace any of the current provision. In terms of trees, a landscaping plan has been submitted which demonstrates all trees will be retained where possible a post and rail fence is proposed around the periphery of the site, with the area of the building being levelled and grass-seeded. The application was subsequently approved, subject to conditions. The building has lain empty since May 2022, when council staff moved to the authority's new state-of-the-art public services hub. The delay in demolition work starting is understood to have been down to mobile phone masts, needing to be relocated from the roof of the offices. The council has previously stated that the site is expected to be used to provide housing for families and young professionals. The underground bunker was constructed more than 30 years ago. Planning documents cite proposals for a basement emergency centre, which formed part of the modern extension to the offices, and refer to the bunker having numerous facilities such as three-tier bunk beds, a kitchen and restroom, toilets and showers, and an area for removing contaminated
2: clothing. Hello, this is Tatch. Cheshire West approves council tax hikes amid row over green bins. Decisions around green bin charges provoked heated debate during an at-times testy meeting of Cheshire West and Chester Council, where a maximum council tax rise, job losses and funding cuts were rubber-stamped. The full council convened at Wyvern House in Winsford on Thursday, February 15th, to discuss the new budget, with the four-hour meeting lasting long into the evening. Members agreed to approve the council's revenue budget of £411 million for the coming financial year, in what finance chiefs have labelled the most difficult ever since the council's creation in 2009. Included in the approved budget was a council tax increase of 4.99%, made up of a 2.99% increase in basic council tax, and an adult social care precept of 2%, which will see a band d bill rise by 89 pounds 55 a year to 1884 pounds and 7 pence the rise is the maximum any council is permitted to adopt by government rules without triggering a local referendum there will also be cuts of 29.8 million pounds next year with further savings required over the following two years There will also be 124 job cuts, with 46 in the coming year, and a reorganisation of senior level posts. A review of services including museums, libraries and shop mobility will also take place in an effort to save cash. The opposition Conservative Group tabled amendments which included more investment in public rights of way, footpaths, gully maintenance... Funds to support two council graduate placements and one which centred around how green bin charge increases were decided, but these were rejected. Council leader Louise Gittins said alternative apprenticeship levy funding would be used to hire graduates. Councillor Mark Stocks, conservative, said that they would help deal with issues around flooding, which he said were likely to be worsened by climate change. He said, many of the residents who pay this council tax live on these roads that are flooded. They are paying huge amounts of council tax, and many of them receive very little in council services. They haven't got an educational need. Many don't have adult social care issues, but they contribute vast sums of money to this authority, and the main access to services is through the highway network, which has been a shambles of late. Responding, Councillor Carol Gehan Cabinet Member for Finance, Labour Party, questioned how it would be paid for, saying I said at the start of the meeting that 70 pence in every pound goes on adult and social care. That leaves 30 pence in every pound for everything else. Collect the bins, fix the roads, pay for schools. An amendment tabled around how increases in green bin charges are decided led to a fiery exchange in the chamber. A 25% increase to the fortnightly opt-in green bin waste collection service was announced on January the 4th by the council, raising it to £50. But the new amendment called for future decisions on green waste collection charges to be made by councillors as part of the annual budget. Councillor Adrian Waddenlove, who represents Farndon for the Conservatives, had previously claimed the green bin rises were unlawful a claim firmly rejected by the council, which said green bins were a discretionary charge and that councils had the right to recoup their costs without going through a budget process requiring a vote by councillors. Councillor Karen Shaw, Labour Party, Deputy Leader and Cabinet Member for the Environment, said the green bin cost was a charge, not a tax, adding, that is what you get as a rookie councillor when you do not check your facts properly. Councillor Sam Naylor, Labour Party, said, We're talking about a billion-pound organisation that's under financial strain. We're looking at incidental items when you're talking about 70 pence in every pound of council tax going to kids and elderly people, and here we are messing about and falling out about green bin charge and 30 pence increase in car parking. Councillor Waddenlove criticised the comments, saying... Councillor Naylor described the green bin charges as incidental. I don't think the people of Ukraine would call democracy incidental. The amendment was defeated. A vote was then taken on the budget and it was passed by 41 voting for, 24 against and 1 abstention.
3: Hello, this is Joe. I hope you're having a lovely time and this is the news. Bid to stop Chester City Centre workers and students blocking driveways on Contested Street. An online petition has been launched calling for parking permits to be introduced on Chester Street due to City Centre workers and students blocking driveways. The petition submitted to Cheshire West and Cheshire Council also says cars being parked on the narrow pavements in Orchard Street are preventing both postal and delivery drivers accessing their homes. It is calling for residents to be given parking permits to avoid other people parking there. Launched this month, the e-petition, set to run until June 14th, states We the undersigned petition the council
4: to introduce
3: residential parking permits for houses on Orchard Street, Chester. Parking down and around Garden Lane is becoming hugely problematic to the to residents, as students from the University of Chester and people working in Town Park in the Coldeath area of Orchard Street often blocking driveways, parking in the already narrow pavements, and preventing postal and delivery drivers being able to adequately do their jobs. This petition is to introduce residential parking permits to allow the priority parking for residents and avoid parking congestion in an already small area.
2: Ellesmere Port's David Lloyd Gym starts work on new paddle courts without planning go-ahead. An Ellesmere Port Gym has been forced to lodge a retrospective planning application after starting work to build five new paddle courts without consent. David Lloyd Cheshire Oaks is in the process of converting two existing tennis courts and relocating the Battle Box, a black shipping container with ropes and climbing obstacles, in order to create the new development. Work began in October last year and has not yet been completed. Paddle tennis is currently one of the fastest growing sports. A form of tennis, it is played mainly in a doubles format on an enclosed court, which is about a third of the size of a normal tennis court. The rules are broadly the same as tennis, although you serve underhand, and the perspex walls are used as part of the game, as in squash. The retrospective planning application lodged with Cheshire West and Chester Council on behalf of David Lloyd Leisure states, We note that David Lloyd did not include the development above within the recent planning application for the Spa Garden and Extension given that the development principally forms the conversion of the existing tennis courts into paddle courts with the relocation of the battle box, which is a temporary stroke movable container. It adds the five paddle courts are built via a pillar structure with anti-injury mesh infill panels at either end of the courts, measuring four metres tall. The remaining sides of the courts are bound with ten millimeter glass and measure three meters tall. To enable the development two external tennis courts have been removed from the site. LED lights are located at each of the courts and measure a height of six point two meters. The floodlighting has replaced those already existing on site. The existing battle box to the northeast of this parcel of land has been relocated to the southwest of the paddle courts. The battle box comprises a black shipping container with ropes and climbing obstacles. We emphasise that the battle box is a movable structure. The area of the existing battle box has been redeveloped as a minor extension to the existing outside seating area. The outside seating area facilitates a social space for members utilising the paddle courts. A canopy has been built above the seating area which measures to a maximum height of 3.8 metres. The canopy will comprise of stretched canvas material in an opaque colour matching the existing colours and materials used for the approved aesthetic of the wider site.
3: Police drone tracks down stolen luxury caravan from Cheshire, more than 200 miles away. A luxury caravan stolen in Cheshire was tracked down more than 200 miles away by a police drone. The vehicle was reported stolen from a farmyard in Cheshire on Saturday, February 3rd. But local bobbies received a tip-off a few days later than it was in Kent. The stolen caravan was located on Saturday, February 10th, by Kent's Police Rural Task Force. With the help of a drone, the two, and two people found inside were arrested. A Kent police spokesperson said, A constable deployed a drone to help view possible locations where it may be parked, a a caravan was successfully found in Darethwood Road, Darnford. Patrols attended the location, and inside the vehicle they found a 23-year-old man and a 22-year-old woman. They were both arrested on suspicion of handling stolen goods and theft. The suspects were bailed until May the 8th while inquiries continue.
2: Chester Zoo celebrates birth of rare spider monkey. A rare primate, known for its spider-like appearance, has been born at Chester Zoo. The baby Colombian black-headed spider monkey has been spotted by visitors while being cradled in the arms of new mum Chiara. Zookeepers have revealed the precious newcomer is female and have named her Olive. The highly threatened primate is vulnerable to extinction in the wild with more than 80% of its population, having been lost in the last half a century. The International Union for the Conservation of Nature has listed these species as vulnerable, meaning it faces a high risk of becoming extinct in the wild. This species spider monkey is found mainly in Colombia and Panama in South America, where it faces threats from hunting and the illegal wildlife trade. The ongoing destruction of their rainforest home, driven mainly by agriculture, has caused severe habitat fragmentation and the species now requires urgent attention to help safeguard their future. Primatologists at the zoo are responsible for managing the coordinated efforts between European zoos that are working to boost numbers and safeguard the charismatic monkeys from disappearing altogether. Mark Brayshaw, head of mammals at the conservation zoo, said... Life as a baby spider monkey is very bumpy, as these fascinating primates are incredibly agile, spending the majority of their time leaping between the treetops and using their tails to hang upside down while foraging for food. It's fantastic to see Kiara cradling baby Olive closely and being so attentive. Olive will cling to mum's belly for a few months before gaining enough confidence to start branching off on her own and start exploring independently, which will be great to see. Spider monkeys face huge survival challenges in the wild. In welcoming new life into the conservation breeding program, we're contributing to global efforts to secure a future for these highly endangered primates. In tandem with offering education, carrying out scientific research, and improving public awareness, we hope to play our part in reversing their decline and ensuring these species thrives long into the future. The species gets its name from its spider-like appearance thanks to their long, narrow limbs, long tails and black fur. Their prehensile tails are often longer than their bodies, acting as an extra limb that wraps around branches and allows them to move freely while collecting food with their hands.
3: Valentine's diners can't put their phones down, even when offered 10% off for a meal in at Chester Restaurant. Diners at a Chester restaurant could not resist pulling out their phones during romantic Valentine's Day meals. Even though they were offered 10% off the bill, they left their devices in a safe. The offer was made by Chester Fields in Bridge Trafford. Staff on social media bet that no one would take them up on the offer, and they were proven right. On social media, the the restaurant invited diners to leave your phones behind the bar while you wine and dine, that special someone tonight we get 10% off on your entire bill. We bet no one will. Go on, prove it's wrong, they said. The popular and rural country pub and restaurant between Chester and Helsby, said staff would turn a blind eye if couples the planning to get engaged during the evening. But not a single pair of romantic diners took the restaurant up on the offer with staff saying we the evening went as expected, adding, we offered a 10% discount to any couple who would leave their phones in the safe for the duration of their meal. Not one person took us up on it. One table was even spotted swiping on Tinder while his partner went to the toilet. One online commentator said, That is unbelievable. I'd rather do without my phone than actually engage with the person I'm with.
5: Aster Racecourse has been named one of the top 10 courses for race day experience in England and Wales. The accolade for the world's oldest operating racecourse comes courtesy of the Racecourse Association's Quality Assured Racecourse Scheme, which gives every racecourse the opportunity to have its race day experience assessed by a trained assessor from Visit England Assessment services for England and Wales with race courses in Scotland assessed by Visit Scotland. The assessments analyse all guest touch points including pre-race day information, the ticket buying process, the on-course experience and post-race day communications. Chester was one of six race courses to retain a place in the top 10 from 2022 highlighting its consistent commitment to providing racegoers with the highest quality race day experience. 2023 saw the average score achieved by racecourses rise 5% to 81% and an increase in the award of RCA Excellence accolades which are bolt-on awards for specific areas of exceptional quality. Chester received an RCA Excellence Accolade in the taste of Racecourse's bar category. Steve Davis, Chief Operating Officer at Chester Racecourse, said, we strive to positively impact people's lives through our passion for horse racing, events, and hospitality, and have continually invested in the overall guest experience. The results of this assessment are testament to that as well as the hard work and dedication of colleagues who are committed to delivering memorable and immersive race day experiences every guest who visits Chester Racecourse. As one of the best days out in the Northwest, we received some amazing feedback throughout 2023, and can't wait to excel further when welcoming guests back for all our exciting themed race days again this year. Paul Swain, RCA Head of Race Day Experience and Communications said, we are delighted to share results of this long standing scheme to recognize exceptional customer experiences. Working alongside globally recognized assessors of quality, Visit England Assessment Services and Visit Scotland, allows racecourses to receive a genuine barometer of their race day experience an area of vital importance as we collaborate to grow the sport. The increase in overall scores plus the additional excellence accolades awarded are testament to the investment put into race day experience by race courses and the RCA will continue to work alongside its members to maintain this positive trend. Simon namford Managing Director, AA Media Limited. So the professional assessments undertaken by Visit England Assessment Services once again demonstrate a high level of consistency in the race day experience. It reflects the hard work of teams across race courses and the focus they place on customer experience and delivering a fantastic day out. It was a pleasure to see so many of these courses recognised at the annual showcase event at Aintree back in November and our congratulations go to the top 10 courses. Visit England Assessment Services, responsible for all assessments in England and Wales, confirm the top 10 race courses for race day experience in 2023 were in alphabetical order, Aintree, Beverley, Chelmsford City, Chester, Haydock Park, Ludlow, Newbury, Newmarket, Salisbury and York. Hello, this is Michael Jones at Chester Talking Newspapers. Chester Zoo is one of the most extensive gatherings of wild animals in captivity in this country today, from its origins in 1931 to the 21st century. The zoo has grown into a 130-acre site, consisting of thousands of different animals and species. Its founder, George Motteseck, started as an entrepreneur in market gardening and began his collection of exotic living things by capturing and preserving the reptiles and insects which were discovered in amongst the imported plants acquired by his family business. Oakfield Manor was chosen as the location for the zoo, in a suburban area known as Upton by Chester. Butter Hill, as it was called in those days, went through an expansion programme, especially in the post-war era. Artists had used wartime materials to achieve the growth he needed, and Chester Zoo gradually became one of the largest zoos in the UK. The founder had a very clear idea of his objectives. The entrepreneur was against the use of cages and iron bars, for example, and insisted on unique methods of containing and controlling the wild animals under his supervision. Instead, had decided to use a system of walls, moats and ditches to hold the animals humanely in captivity. The zoo without bars, as it became known, eventually brought in 2 million visitors a year, and George Mottishead was awarded the OBE. Chapter de Zoo is run by the North of England Zoological Society and employs 650 people rising to 1,000 in the summer season. Its reputation and effectiveness as a display of wildlife was dependent on a number of key features such as the boat ride through the gardens and grounds of the zoo, the monorail system, these of islands surrounded by water, Elephant's Bridge, and the flag lane, bridleway, and cycle path. Amongst those areas highlighted are the Wildlife Sanctuary and Nature Reserve, the Lion Enclosure, the Twilight Zone, the Monsoon Forest, and many others. The development of the zoo was progressive and evolutionary in terms of how it was done and while some projects folded others came along to replace them and so the site was constantly moving with the times they were always building according to the organizers at this moment in time chester zoo has charge of a wide variety of animals plants birds, reptiles, amphibians, and fish, some of which are considered to be endangered species. In fact, thousands of animals are on display at the site at Corgle Road. Amongst the long-serving exhibits at the zoo are the spirit of the jaguar, the realm of the red ape, and elephants of the Asian forest. In addition to this, the chimpanzees roam freely on artificial islands surrounded by water. Tropical birds are housing areas of green vegetation. Black rhinos, polar bears, Sumatran tigers, and many more. Since 1931, the site at Oakfield Manor has matured into an extraordinary zoological achievement and has entered the public domain through a series of television documentaries which brought national coverage to the region. The project started by George Mottisette that has evolved over the years into an attraction visited by millions of people and has played an important role in researching and preserving a wide range of animals and plants threatened with extinction, which might otherwise have disappeared without the long-term support and assistance of Chester Zoo. More than 25 schools across Cheshire have been benefiting from an early intervention program aimed at challenging and changing young people's attitudes towards gang culture and knife crime. Pupils across the county have, been, have taken part in the getaway and get safe sessions held in schools over the past 18 months. Also known as gangs, The program was set up by James Riley, who worked as a probation officer for 18 years, specializing in urban street gangs and organized crime groups. The program is designed to empower young people to make the right choices and not be tempted by gang culture, knife crime, and to generally take greater social responsibility. Funding for gangs in Cheshire was secured by Chief Inspector Sarah O'Driscoll, who submitted an application to the Police and Crime Commissioner's Police Innovation Fund, a fund which helps support new projects which will have a positive impact on policing in the county. Chief Inspector O'Driscoll said, having worked with James for a number of years, I'm aware how much his input can educate young people around some of the dangers of knife crime and gangs. It's really important to me that we use seized criminal gains to educate young people, to deviate them away from crime and make sure they are aware of the consequences of their actions. I'm delighted that we've been able to share James' life experiences with so many young people in Cheshire, who I hope will make the right choices and mature into responsible young adults. A total of 27 schools have benefited from the program across the last two academic years. Five intense one-hour sessions are taught Monday to Friday, highlighting the dangers and consequences of youth crime, ASB, weapons, drugs, exploitation, county lines, organized crime groups, and gang lifestyle for the individual, their families, and the wider community. A year 10 pupil said of the sessions, it was really helpful. I liked James because he was easy to understand. I didn't think I needed to worry about gangs, but by the end, I understood how easy it is to fall into a gang. Gangs founder, James Riley, said, I would like to thank CI Sarah O'Driscoll for supporting the project and for introducing our organization, the Cheshire Schools. I hope to educate many young people to keep them on the right path in life and empower them achieve their hopes and dreams.
0: The Welsh Government Minister leading the speed limit changes on roads across Wales has said attitudes towards 20 miles per hour are beginning to change. New preliminary data published on Wednesday the 21st of February shows that speeds have reduced by an average of 4 miles per hour on main roads since the national rollout of the default 20 mile per hour speed limit. The data monitored millions of vehicles speeds in nine different communities across Wales before and after implementation. Deputy Minister for Climate Change with responsibility for transport, Lee Waters, said, The latest data published today is clear evidence that average speeds are coming down on roads across Wales. We also know from data published by Go Safe earlier this month that 97% of drivers are complying with the new slower speed limit. We've still got a way to go, but it's encouraging to see that things are moving in the right direction. Every one mile per hour reduction in speed makes a real difference, so this is a real turning point. The international evidence is clear lower speeds save lives. That's fewer collisions, fewer deaths, and fewer severe injuries, reducing the devastation to individuals and their families, and the significant impact on the NHS and other emergency services. Commenting on the latest statistics, the chief executive of the road safety charity Brake, Ross Morlock, added, it's encouraging to see how the new 20mph speed limit has reduced the overall speed on these roads. Every day, five people die on UK roads, and speed is a factor in every crash. The faster we drive, the greater our risk of crashing, and the harder we hit if we do crash. We know that road crashes have a devastating impact on families and communities. Sadly, we see this firsthand every day through the work of our National Road Victim Service, Which last year supported more than 1,500 families who have been bereaved by a road crash or suffered catastrophic life changing injuries. We hope that governments and local authorities across the UK will take Wales' lead and adopt 20 miles per hour as the default speed on roads where people and vehicles mix. The British Business Bank has unveiled. A landmark half a million pound debt finance deal from its £130 million investment fund for Wales, injecting vital capital into Palmer's, Deeside's pioneering scaffolding firm and the UK's oldest in the industry. The fund was established to enhance the availability of early stage finance for small and medium sized enterprises throughout Wales. It will deliver the £130 million commitment of new funding to the country. It offers a range of commercial financial options, with smaller loans from 250 pounds to £100,000, debt finance from £100,000 to £2 million, and equity investment of up to £5 million. The fund covers the whole of Wales, including rural, coastal and urban areas. Palmer's Scaffolding, headquartered at the Aviation Park, Saltley Ferry, boasts a rich history dating back to its formation in 1888 by Edwin Palmer. With a workforce surpassing 226 skilled professionals, Palmer's has consistently been ranked among the top 10 UK scaffolding contractors. The firm has seen a steady increase in turnover, from £12 million in 2020 to an impressive £23 million in 2023, and it's on track to reach £31 million in 2024. The company pays, plays a crucial role in major infrastructure projects across the country, including the £32 billion Hinkley Point C nuclear power station project in the southwest and various high-profile industrial and construction contracts in the North-East and in London. With regional offices spanning England and its headquarters in Flintshire, Palmer's national presence is expansive. Michael Carr, CEO of Palmer, said, Funding for Wales Capital was a rigorous approval process before accepting our application. We were very impressed with their approach. Large infrastructure projects like those at Hinkley Point are our lifeblood but we need a significant amount of working capital for us to bring together everything we needed once we were brought on to take part in the construction. We're really pleased that we got the support we needed from the Investment Fund for Wales and Funding for Wales Capital meaning we could hit the ground running with the project and bring our expertise to bear on what is one of the biggest projects of its type ongoing in the UK right now. The loan will be used for cash flow funding and capital expenditure requirements. We are currently expanding our footprint in the northwest, and we are budgeting for a £31 million turnover in 2024. The British Retail Consortium has released figures showing a dramatic increase in both thefts and violence against retail workers across the UK. According to the latest crime survey, incidents of abuse and theft have sharply risen, with daily occurrences reaching 1,300 in the year 2022-23, up from 870 the previous year. This upsurge comes despite significant investment in crime prevention by retailers, totalling over £1.2 billion, a substantial rise from the £722 million spent the previous year. However, the cost of theft alone has surged to £1.8 billion, contributing to a total crime cost of £3.3 billion, effectively doubling the financial burden on retailers compared to the previous year. The British Retail Consortium's annual survey emphasises the distressing level of violence and abuse retail workers face, including racial abuse, sexual harassment, physical assaults and threats with weapons. With 60% of retail respondents rating the police response to incidents as poor or very poor, there is a growing dissatisfaction within the sector regarding law enforcement's handling of these issues. In response, there are widespread calls for the government to introduce a standalone offence for assaulting, threatening or abusing retail workers, akin to legislation already in place in Scotland. The North Wales Police and Crime Commissioner, Andy Dunbobbin, said, These figures from the British Retail Consortium, that incidents against staff have risen by 50% in a year and thefts have doubled, are truly shocking. Shop assistants and colleagues have a right to go to work and feel safe and business owners have a right to know that the police are there for them if the worst happens. North Wales Police are introduce, introduced the We Don't Buy Crime campaign last year and officers are active in the community in advising businesses on how to make their premises and their operations more secure and ensuring that goods and property can be marked, making it harder for them to be sold on. More widely, we also need to look at the social reasons behind this rise, and how we can ensure that offenders are dissuaded from causing further crime. A hardened man who stole a mop and bucket from a Chester DIY store has been jailed for a total of 30 weeks. Ethan Marshall, 30, of Upper Aston Hall, Harden, pleaded guilty to the shoplifting offence, which happened at B&Q in Sealand Road on December 21st, 2023. At Chester Magistrates Court on Tuesday, February 20th, magistrates believed that the cycle of offending Marshall had become involved in had to be stopped and sentenced him to an immediate custodial term. The court heard that the defendant was already subject to a suspended sentence after breaching a community order for shoplifting. Prosecuting Scott Woodward said a B&Q worker recognised Marshall as a shoplifter, and on the 21st of December 2023, he saw the defendant picking up a box containing the mop and bucket, priced at 42 pounds 48 p, and leaving the store, making no attempt to pay. Marshall had seven previous convictions for 19 offences. A probation officer said Marshall had breached the suspended sentence in January for which he was fined, and since then his engagement with his supervising officer had improved. Defending, Selina Woodward said there had been a prompt guilty plea and the defendant was in a better place than he was, feeling that his anxiety depression and PTSD were being managed well, but magistrates jailed Marshall for a total of 30 weeks. He must also pay a £154 victim surcharge. The Welsh Government's Petitions Committee, chaired by Allen & Deeside MS Jack Sargent, will explore the possibility of providing free public transport for young people. The initiative is not just about fare-free travel, it's part of a broader vision to shift travel habits towards more sustainable modes, in line with Wales's ambitious net zero and modal shift targets. The Welsh Government has acknowledged the steep challenge ahead. Its 2021 Wales Transport Strategy outlined goals to increase journeys made by public transport or active means from 32% to 45% by 2040. A significant move towards this target is the potential introduction of free public transport for young people, as suggested by the Welsh Youth Parliament in its 2023 Sustainable Ways report. The report highlighting feedback from over 1,300 young people found that nearly three-quarters would opt for public transport if it were free, underlining the financial barrier that fares currently present. The rising cost of bus travel, a critical issue identified by the sustainable transport charity Sustrans in its 2022 report, disproportionately impact young people who rely on buses for education, work and training. The YWP, or Welsh Youth Parliament's, proposal for free transport for individuals under 25 is seen as a potential game-changer, not just for immediate uptake, but for cultivating a lifelong habit of using public transport. However, financial constraints do pose a significant hurdle. The Deputy Minister for Climate Change, Lee Waters MS, has expressed the difficulty in funding such initiatives, pointing out the current inability to make public transport entirely free for young people. Despite this, the Welsh Government offers some relief through discounted travel schemes like the 16-21 My Travel Pass and various rail cards, although awareness among young people remains low. The discussion extends beyond Wales, with comparisons drawn to schemes in other parts of the UK, like Scotland's free bus travel for 5 to 21-year-olds and some targeted free services in English cities. These examples provide valuable insights into the potential benefits and challenges of implementing similar programmes in Wales. Calls for free public transport from figures like the Future Generations Commissioner for Wales and the Children's Commissioner for Wales emphasise the dual benefits of easing cost of living pressures and promoting environmental sustainability among younger demographics. As the Petitions Committee delves deeper into this issue, the debate encompasses broader considerations about fairness sustainability and the practicalities of funding. The upcoming Bus Bill and ongoing discussions about fare caps and service delivery models indicate that the Welsh Government is searching for innovative solutions to enhance public transport availability and accessibility for young people. A herd of reindeer which form part of a popular festive attraction are facing a battle to keep their home. The Reindeer Lodge at Leeswood near Mould draws thousands of visitors as a year as people flock to see Father Christmas and his reindeer on a drive-through festive light trail. However, the owners of the business based on Black Meadows Farm are potentially facing the prospect of having to remove two wooden buildings used to rear the herd of 31 reindeer. The buildings were constructed without planning permission in 2018 and 2019 shortly after the owners took over the site. A retrospective application to allow the shelters to remain in place was originally submitted to Flintshire Council in November 2022 but was later withdrawn after concerns were raised by Natural Resources Wales and the Coal Authority over drainage. How the reindeer's droppings would be dealt with and the presence of underground mine shafts nearby. A fresh bid has now been made to gain retrospective permission for the buildings. If approval is refused, it's possible that the owners could be issued with an enforcement notice, demanding them to remove the shelters. In a planning statement, agents acting on the owners' behalf said, This application seeks planning permission for two buildings associated with the rearing and keeping of reindeer, as well as a seasonal change of use of the land to allow visitors on site during certain times of the year. The business is situated on a farm and has been used as a reindeer farm and visitor attraction from November to December each year. The business has grown year on year into one of North Wales' leading festive attractions – attracting thousands of visitors into the area each year. It has quickly become a festive tradition for many returning visitors and the attraction is largely very well received by the overwhelming majority of local residents. To conclude, it is clear that the proposals are compliant with policy and would allow this rural enterprise to continue this form of diversification. The Reindeer Lodge was previously named as a cheaper UK alternative to visiting Lapland in a campaign run by outdoor clothing company Regatta. In 2020 it was also included by The Guardian in a list of the UK's best Christmas illuminations. Agents representing the business said any concerns raised by the Coal Authority and Natural Resources Wales had been addressed in the latest application. The document also details plans to replace trees which were previously removed when the reindeer shelters were first built. However, an organisation which represents Welsh Ramblers has objected to the resubmitted proposals due to concerns over the impact on several public footpaths. In their response Ramblers Cymru said while the applicants may feel they have addressed the issues of manure and sewage, they've completely failed to address the outstanding issue of public paths. Those paths will be directly affected by visitors' cars and commercial activity. Some paths are already obstructed by reindeer paddock fencing. In particular, the use of the main track would be severely impacted by visitor vehicle traffic, which, although constrained by pre-booking time slots, is estimated to peak at 60 cars per hour. There is no safe place for walkers to pass cars on this track. Comments are currently being invited on the application via the Council's website, with a decision expected at a later date. The award-winning Real Air Show is taking a break this year, following the announcement of the Red Arrow's 60th season anniversary international tour this summer. The Red Arrows have been an integral part of the show lineup in past years, and the decision has been taken not to run the show in 2024 without them. In recent years, during the Rill Airshow weekend, the Red Arrows team has made Harden Airport their base, delighting the local community with spectacular flyovers throughout the two-day event. This news follows various other air shows across the UK deciding not to run their show this year due to the Red Arrows being abroad for the summer. Graham Bowes, Chief Executive of Denbyshire County Council, said We understand the decision will be a disappointment to those who regularly attend the air show and also to local businesses. We fully appreciate the economic impact of the event to Rill and as a council, We remain committed to working with Denbyshire Leisure Limited or DLL to build the town's reputation as a destination for major events and we will work with DLL to seek alternative events. Jamie Groves, Managing Director of DLL said, It is with a heavy heart that we have decided not to run the Real Air Show this year. The Red Arrow's have been an integral part of the airshow programme over many years, usually providing the spectacular finale to the shows. Unfortunately, they will be away on their international tour over the summer, so unavailable for UK displays. With our programme already subject to scrutiny over recent years, we believe that the Red Arrows are irreplaceable and that we've concluded that it would be impossible for DLL to deliver a show in keeping with the proud tradition of the real Air Show, which also meets public expectations. But we will come back in 2025 even stronger. A planning application has been submitted to extend a Gypsy and Traveller site in Flintshire. Plans have been lodged with Flintshire Council to extend the Huntley's Yard site, located on Chester Road in Flint. The proposal is for a further 10 pitches on land adjacent to the existing traveller site, with each comprising one static home. The application is also proposing the building of a day room, the provision of two parking spaces, a bin storage area and a 1.8 metre high boundary fence. Two existing gypsy and traveller sites, Huntley's Yard and The Coach Yard, are located to the west of the proposed site. Foul drainage for the proposed site extension would be taken via a link to the existing main sewer that runs through the Huntley's Yard site. A planning statement on behalf of the applicant said, we can find no evidence that would reasonably show how Flintshire Council have met their statutory responsibilities to plan properly and provide sustainable sites for the Gypsy and Traveller community. This approach is having a detrimental effect on adults and children from the Gypsy and Traveller community and has ultimately forced unauthorised developments to take place in Flintshire. While this is not one of those sites, we believe that it is imperative that the Local Planning Authority positively considers this application in a reasonable and in a timely manner. Flintshire Council hopes to make a decision on the application by the 11th of April.
5: Militant farmers who massed for a protest in Rill were overwhelmed by the support they received in the Denbyshire town. Many were less impressed by the tide of their anger after he declined to speak with protest leaders. First Minister Mark Greatford visited Rill to formally open colleague Vandrello's £13 million engineering centre in the town. He was accompanied by Rural Affairs Minister Leslie Griffiths. An estimated 100 tractors assembled for their arrival, but hundreds of farmers and supporters jeered the First Minister as he left. Although many protesters gained entry to the campus grounds, the demonstration was largely peaceful, though there were reports of pushing and shoving when Mr Drakeford arrived. A large police presence ensured order as the First Minister's vehicle was drawn up close to the college doors for his departure. One man was reported to have been pulled aside by police after he reportedly attempted to disrupt the First Ministers cavalcade as it left. The Vale of Cluid farmer Hugh Williams said the protest was conducted in good spirits, despite the strength of feeling present. Some local people were slightly bewildered by the rural invasion, but many gave support. This despite incessant beeping amid claims tractors had brought the South of Rail to a standstill at lunchtime. I would say there were around a 100 tractors in Rill, and between 60 to 70 pickups and Land Rovers, said the Danbyshire councillor. It was difficult to keep count, as more and more people kept arriving as word spread on social media about the protest. It was conducted peacefully, but it was disappointing that the First Minister refused to stop and speak with protest organisers. I just showed the arrogance of Welsh Government Ministers who have brought about this problem. It was very gratifying to see so many rural people in their houses and gardens clapping and cheering us as we drove in. Others were cheering us as we drove around the Sainsbury's roundabout. When the First Minister drove away at the end, there was plenty of jeering, and one man was apprehended by the police when he tried to stop the convoy. He was pulled away, but was later let go. A series of enough-is-enough protests have occurred across Wales in recent days, as disillusioned farmers have taken to the roads to express frustration at the Welsh Government's proposed sustainable farming scheme. A replacement for former EU subsidies are now no longer available after Brexit. Ministers said the scheme will support farmers while addressing the climate crisis. Qualified for payments, farmers will have to commit to planting 10% of their land with trees and earmark another 10% as wildlife habitat. Many farmers worry too much uh, food-producing land will be lost and are alarmed by the amount of paperwork that may be involved. In the Senate this week, Mr Drakeford blamed Brexit-voting farmers Leaving Welsh ministers with a small pot of money to fund a bespoke Welsh support scheme. On social media, Farmers Union of Wales President Ian Rickman delivered a warning as farm protests increase in size and frequency. We have warned the Welsh Government in the past not to awaken the sleeping Welsh dragon, he said. The dragon is well and truly awake now and surely can't be ignored. Cardiff has insisted no final decision has yet been taken over the scheme. A spokesperson said working in partnership with the farming sector is key. That is why the sustainable farming scheme has been jointly developed with farmers. The scheme is currently out for consultation and we would like to thank the thousands of farmers who have already responded and attended the 10 Welsh Government roadshow sessions across Wales. No final decision will be taken on the scheme until after the consultation has ended, and we encourage everyone to reply with their views by March the
2: 7th.
6: Constantly tired but struggling to sleep. You might have high cortisol levels, says Mary Claire UK. 10 simple ways to decrease yours. Cortisol is your main stress hormone and the chemical messenger in the body that signals to your brain to get up and go. Whilst everyone needs cortisol to survive, and a 2018 study highlights too much cortisol, has been shown to raise appetite as a result of false hunger signals, in turn leading to weight gain. Not to mention increasing your fatigue, irritability, stomach issues and blood pressure. And lowering your sleep quality and libido. According to Charity Mental Health UK, high cortisol levels might be impacting a lot of you. An estimated one in five Brits aren't getting enough sleep, with stress levels higher than ever. And anyone who's ever lain awake for hours with a buzzing mind will know that sleep and stress have a bi-directional relationship. It's the old conundrum, you're shattered but have a bad night's sleep and the never-ending cycle of exhaustion continues how to decrease cortisol levels according to the experts. Firstly, cortisol plays an important role in various physiological functions beyond just stress response. Released by the adrenal glands in response to perceived stresses or danger, it's essential for survival and helps to regulate metabolism, reduce inflammation and assist in memory formation too. That said, in our modern lifestyle, stresses are more often deadlines than physical dangers. How to reduce it? First, focus on your diet. What you eat is key to maintaining stable energy levels and supporting regular blood sugar levels. If somebody has PCOS, for instance, particularly women, polycystic ovary cyst- syndrome this naturally increased level of cortisol and androgens. So don't skip breakfast, if you can tell you're stressed. Instead, opt for a balanced breakfast that focuses on protein, healthy fats and complex carbohydrates. So complex carbohydrates are glucose hacks. Avoid skipping meals and include a protein source in each meal, such as eggs, meat, fish, beans and tofu to support sustained energy through the day. This helps stop cortisol spikes caused by low blood sugar. Complex carbohydrates such as whole grains and sweet potatoes, as well as healthy fats found in avocado and olive oil, can also stabilise blood sugar levels and support cortisol balance. 2 be mindful of your caffeine intake. It's very easy to rely on caffeine as a hit when you're running on empty, but if you're constantly wired on caffeine, it's worth switching to decaf or skipping caffeine altogether. Caffeine stimulates the adrenal glands leading to cortisol release. So limit it to one cup a day and avoid consumption after 12 p.m. to prevent stress on the body. Three, prioritize good sleep hygiene. Cortisol is closely tied to your sesadian rhythm. Establish a regular bedtime routine, minimize screen time before bed as blue light impacts sleep hormones and create a cool dark sleep environment to support your body's natural sesadian rhythm. Four, exercise mindfully. Exercise has a huge mental and physical health benefits, from reducing anxiety and depression to helping you sleep better. But when it comes to high-intensity workouts, there is such a thing as too much of a good thing. HIT workouts in particular have been found to spike cortisol levels, and overtraining also can. So instead, or incorporate low-impact beginner workouts like Pilates, workouts or morning yoga flows into your routine and make sure to prioritise rest days. 5. Set boundaries. Boundaries are something of a buzzword for 2023, but they can also be vital for helping to decrease your cortisol levels. Learning to say no can be a powerful tool. So aim to identify and manage stressful relationships or situations by setting boundaries when you're feeling you're able to. Be kind to yourself. And don't berate yourself if you find it tricky. You're a work in progress and that's okay. Six, practice stress reduction techniques. These are anything that makes you feel less stressed. Whether that's a long hot soak in the bath, cleaning the house or meditating. These are things you can do every day that help to lower your stress levels. There are also active stress management techniques for you to use when you're faced with a stressful situation, which is such simple as pausing, considering what you want the outcome to be, reminding yourself that you can choose your reaction. Breathwork training is also a useful tool, such as box breathing, which is inhale, for a certain amount of seconds many start with four or eight so inhale for that amount of seconds then hold for that amount of seconds exhale for that amount of seconds hold for that amount of seconds and that's one full cycle so once you've done one full cycle you'll begin again by inhaling for that amount of seconds and that can continue for several minutes until you relax It's very much known to help you step out of the fight-or-flight response, and it can also help you go to sleep. 7. Embrace mindfulness Mindful practices can help you manage perceived stress, which in turn helps regulate cortisol levels. Think about focusing on being fully present and aware during your day. You don't have to set aside swathes of time to practice mindfulness but rather aim to carve out a few moments every day. This can make a huge difference on your stress levels. Number eight, embrace nature. Forget full-on forest bathing, unless you want to. Instead, focus on short bursts of time outdoors. Take a short walk during your lunch break or simply step outside for five minutes to do some breath work. There are a whole heap of benefits of walking, walking workouts at the ready. 9. Be mindful of your screen time. If you're prone to doom scrolling, consider setting some time limits around your use of social media. 10. Consider targeted supplements. Last, but by no means least, studies have shown the adaptogen ashwagandha can help support healthy hormone balance and reduce cortisol levels. A staple in Ayurvedic practices, the proponents believe that the root can help to calm anxiety and aid natural sleep. While supplements won't single-handedly reduce your stress levels, when taken alongside other tips in this article, they could certainly make a difference.
7: A day in the life of comedian Frank Skinner. Frank Skinner was born in West Bromwich and worked as an English lecturer at Hales Owen College before trying stand-up in 1987. He won the Perrier Award in 1991 and he topped the charts in 1996 with the song Three Lions, a duet with his fantasy football league co-host David Baddiel. He hosts a Saturday morning show on Absolute Radio as well as a poetry podcast. He lives in North London with his partner Kath and their 12-year-old son Buzz. He says, the reason I get up at 7.23 every morning is that I resent the authoritarian nature of the clock. You're supposed to get up at o'clock something or half past. No, 7.23 for me. Then on the toilet I do a lot of daydreaming. For years, it was where I was West Brom's greatest player, but moved over to Barcelona as player manager. My partner, Kath, has tinnitus, so the radio is on constantly as background noise. She's made me the same breakfast every day for the past 23 years, and I'm still not sure what's in it. It's a sort of porridge with seeds and nuts and this compote concoction. Then I walk Buzz to school, usually talking about heavy metal music. I wanted him to go to a Catholic school till his first communion, get him signed in, so to speak. But he's now at a liberal place that's more about happiness than academic rigour. I'm fine with that. Happiness is high on my list of priorities. I do a standard working day from 10am to about 6.30. That might be something for my poetry podcast or working on a new stand-up. Financially, I don't really have to do anything anymore, but retirement is more complicated than that. My mum and dad both retired at 65 and they were dead by 70. When you retire, it's not just the money you lose. It's the camaraderie, your identity, a sense of purpose. I still enjoy stand-up and I think I'm really good at it. The only person I know who's funnier than me is Buzz. He's always cracking jokes about my haircut, my pod belly or me being the oldest dad at school. Stand-up comedy has changed a lot since I started doing it. It used to be a bit of a lads club. Did I see anything nasty then? Not with the people I knew. Looking back there are a few jokes that I wouldn't do today but the alternative comedy scene was pretty good at self-policing. I once had a cameraman thrown off a show because he'd put his camera up the skirt of one of the wardrobe girls. I'm not setting myself up as some kind of hero. I'm just saying it wasn't part of my world. Kath has lunch on her own because she's super healthy. I, on the other hand, have crackers and taramasalata. I don't actually know what taramasalata is, but I assume that there are some vegetables in there. Back when I was drinking, lunch would have been a couple of bottles of cider too. Even after I stopped drinking in 1986, I'd often find myself thinking about nipping over to the off-licence. Drinking made me feel like a romantic outlaw, railing against the great god of normality. Thankfully, that was all gone by the time Buzz was born. I loved my dad and I had a wonderfully happy childhood, but he was a complicated man and he was a big drinker. There was always an air of tension in the house when he was coming back from the pub. I think the best present you can give any child is two teetotal parents. When we knew Buzz was about to arrive, both me and Kath went into meltdown mode. She was 41 and I was 55. Then he arrived and I realised I'd got my own little soulmate, someone to watch Camberwick Green and Doctor Who with. Once Buzz is back from school, he and Kath take charge of the telly, so I make a bit of tea and I take the dog for a walk. I might read for an hour or two, but I'm usually in bed by 9 or 10 p.m. People make a big thing about me being a Catholic. To me, it's a bit like CCTV. It just keeps a benevolent eye on you, making sure what you're doing is right. If I do get to heaven, I've often wondered what job I'd get. I'd like to be a defence lawyer for borderline cases. People with a good heart who've made a few poor decisions. We used to call it forgiveness and it used to be quite popular. But the world isn't quite so keen on forgiveness these days. Maybe it's time to bring it back. This was adapted from an article in the Times 2 supplement of Wednesday, February 14th, 2024.
6: How to get rid of
7: gnats in houseplants, nine expert backed ways.
6: Gnats are a pesky problem most plant parents will deal with at some point. Lucky there are several ways to deal with gnats on your house plants, and the key is making the plant's environment less gnat friendly. Although they're not harmful and don't bite, most of them anyway, gnats are a nuisance when you're trying to maintain an indoor garden. Three of the creepy crawlers you'll find in your abode include sewer gnats, fungus gnats and fruit flies. If you want a leafy green gloriously gnat free look, no further. 1. Don't overwater your plants. The best house plants for an indoor garden are not only eye-catching to you, but they're a popular hangout for pests because you've likely left the soil too moist. Something they love. Work preventatively by allowing the top inch of soil to dry out between watering. If you're fearful of over-watering it, a Mister can give your plants the proper hydration without an excess of moisture sitting in the soil. 2. Keep an eye on the soil. One of the biggest mistakes in learning how to care for houseplants is gardening expert creator Tracy Ling says is paying attention to the calendar instead of using your judgment. Even if a houseplant needs water on a weekly basis, that doesn't mean it's the be-all and end-all. If the soil's still pretty moist even after a week, consider holding off for a day or two. The important thing is to pay attention to how the soil and plant in general looks and feels. So, make sure you leave the top few centimetres of soil drying out before you rewater your plant. 3. Target the larva. In order to get rid of gnats, you have to concern yourself with how they got there in the first place. The moist soil is a breeding ground for adult gnats to lay their eggs. Getting the moisture levels in your plant soil right will be the first step in eliminating this annoying critter. A solution of one part 3% hydroxygen peroxide to four parts water works well to kill any larvae in the soil. Wait for the top few centimetres of soil to dry out as you would before watering and then apply the solution. Four, use a natural insecticide spray. If you want to get rid of gnats, try a gnat spray such as 203 Sierra Natural Science available on Amazon. This is a natural solution created from 100% pure rosemary and clove botanical extracts. Considering peppermint, thyme and rosemary are some of the most effective natural elements for the job, you'll feel good about going on this route. Number five, make your own solution. Who can resist a garden DIY? There are plenty of benefits of houseplants, so we'd recommend taking any extra steps available to help get rid of the pests. Create your own trap using a solution of one tablespoon of sugar, two drops of dish soap, and one cup of white wine vinegar. Fern recommends add this mixture to a small container with several small holes poked into the lid. The gnats will be able to get into the container but not back out. White vinegar also works as a replacement for white wine vinegar. 6. Use sticky traps. Sticky traps are not only effective, water and UV resistant and suitable for indoor and outdoor usage, but they're non-toxic and pesticide free. 7. Use an electric fly swatter. 8. Use rotting produce. The only thing gnats love as much as moist soil is fruit that's gone bad. So before you get rid of your apples and part ways with those squishy avocados, lure the pests from your houseplants with something they love before trapping them sharp. Nine, watch your surroundings. A common houseplant mistake is not being attentive to your surroundings, such as the plant moist soil. Speaking of which, the overall environment in your house or apartment has high humidity, so you might want to consider one of the best dehumidifiers on the shelves for your space. Gnats are also attracted to fruit that's turning bad, so be mindful of what's on the kitchen table, as well as food that gets caught in the drain of the sink. And make sure you take the bin out regularly.
7: Actress Samantha Morton is awarded a BAFTA Fellowship. The news came when she was at the theatre. Just before Christmas, Samantha Morton and her husband, Harry Holm, were taking their children, aged 16 and 9, to see My Neighbour Totoro at the Barbican in London. In the interval, Morton checked her emails and saw that one was from her agent, telling her that BAFTA was offering her its highest accolade, a fellowship, an award previously dished out to Judy Dench, Stanley Kubrick and Alfred Hitchcock. Heady company. So heady, in fact, that Morton replied to check that they had sent the email to the right person. She has accepted an award for three decades of film acting, from Oscar-nominated roles in Woody Allen's Sweet and Lowdown, to blockbusters such as Minority Report, to smaller-scale work such as Morven Caller. I just stopped and sobbed, says Morton. She talks via Zoom from her home in North London. There was a family sitting behind me and they probably thought I'd got terrible news, but I felt such deep, deep gratitude and an overwhelming sense of confusion. I suppose I just didn't feel worthy. She has been working more in TV of late, roles in The Walking Dead, Harlots and The Burning Girls. Yet she was delighted to be remembered for her films too. She was a single mother to her oldest, the actress Esme Creed Miles, 24, when her first Hollywood successes came, so too busy to stop and enjoy it. Samantha Morton grew up in foster homes and care homes in Nottingham from the age of eight and she hopes to encourage more people into the arts. She says, it is an amazing trophy to put on a shelf, but I just feel, OK, how do I make this better now for people like me who are coming through? I'm 46. I hope that BAFTA will use me in what I stand for for the next 40 years. Her children grew up, she says, very privileged, by contrast. Yet she worries that with the incredibly short-sighted move away from music and drama in schools, today's Samantha Morton's would find it harder to forge an acting career. She says she owes hers to one teacher, Mr Thompson. When she was 12, he encouraged her to audition for the Central Junior Television Workshop in Nottingham. If Mr Thompson hadn't been able to teach drama the way he did, she says, I wouldn't be talking to you today. After dropping out of school age 16, she wrote a play, The Unloved, about children in care, which in 2009 she made into a film. She has written a second part of a proposed thematic trilogy, Starlings, about what happens when you leave care, but Channel 4 has turned it down and the BBC hasn't got back to her. A third film would be from the perspective of a parent whose child is taken into care, drawing heavily on the experience of her mother. She says it's about social injustice for women, how women are vilified. She remains grateful for her Hollywood experience of filming, but part of it still rankles with her. She says, I was paid very well for filming Minority Report, but let's say, for example, I got paid 10p. Colin Farrell probably got paid 80p. The pay discrepancy between men and women is pretty horrific. I was doing OK for a girl from a council estate in Nottingham, but I would still be a little heartbroken that my male equal colleagues, not talking about movie stars, Tom Cruise is a whole other ball game they would get considerably more. In 2008, Morton almost died when her ceiling collapsed at home. She had a stroke and at 31 had to learn to walk again. It sounds like terrible luck. But she says, I don't think I've been unlucky. I think I've been very, very lucky. When the ceiling fell on my head, I was in front of little children. I protected them. Had it not fallen on my head, it probably would have killed quite a few kids. As a child herself, she learned to survive. You have to find your voice and then when you're older, without sounding like a hockey coach, you have to pick yourself up and go. Something else is around the corner. For Samantha Morton, that Something Else is a new album recorded with Richard, Russel, Richard Russell, the boss of Adele's record label. Under the name Sam Morton, is this a new kind of freedom? No, it's all the same, she says. Bafter's latest fellow says cheerfully, but I'd love to do theatre again. I like music. I like taking photographs. I draw. I paint. I've got 43 minutes of footage for my next film as a director. I just need more money to finish it. I'm mad about cooking. It's all the same vessel. It's all the same waterfall. I just love doing stuff. This was adapted from an article in the Times Saturday Review of Saturday, February the 17th, 2024. Time's books writer Alice O'Keefe recommends re-reading Sons and Lovers by D. H. Lawrence. It's no bad thing to read a book that is clever and witty, she says. I admire books like that from afar, but I can't much be bothered with them any more. Life is short, reading time is scarce. We're assailed by bad news, and today the only book that I want to read is one that's wise and beautiful. Why settle for anything less, and I can't think of a wiser or more beautiful book than Sons and Lovers. D. H. Lawrence doesn't do anything particularly fancy in his autobiographical masterpiece. Writing on the eve of modernism in 1913, he doesn't play with timelines or invent new forms of language or expound on political themes. He simply reflects on his life experiences with a clarity that feels completely effortless. The words seem to flow from him with no hesitation or second-guessing. We associate stream-of-consciousness narratives with more knowingly experimental writers like Virginia Woolf or James Joyce, but for me, Lawrence captures the ebbs and flows of everyday human experience much more naturally and in a way that is a pleasure rather than a chore to read. The book is about the Morels, a family living in a small Nottinghamshire pit village. The father, Walter, like Lawrence's own father, Arthur, is a hard-working, hard-drinking collier prone to outbursts of violence. He makes a difficult match for his wife, Gertrude, who is more refined, small and delicate, with a curious, receptive mind. Having fallen passionately in love as a young woman, she is gradually disillusioned by Walter's drinking, irresponsibility and violence. She pours everything she has into her children, William, Annie, Arthur and particularly the sensitive, artistic Paul. Although the family differs in some details from Lawrence's, the dynamic was certainly inspired by his parents. Lawrence's mother, Lydia, was a curiosity in their village, a woman of ideas who had harboured ambitions to be a teacher that were frustrated by her financial circumstances. Paul is Lawrence's stand-in, but some of the most powerful scenes take place before he is born, or at least before his living memory. In one episode, Walter locks his pregnant wife out of the house at night in a drunken rage. She walked down the garden path trembling in every limb while the child boiled within her, he says. Can't you feel her rage and the despair in that boiling child? Just as you can feel the maternal guilt and love intertwined in her feelings for Paul as she noticed the peculiar knitting of the baby's brows as if it were trying to understand something that was pain. Lawrence hasn't traditionally been a favourite of feminists. Only a decade after he had emerged as a cause celebre from the 1960 Lady Chatterley obscenity trial, the critic Kate Millett accused him of writing sadistic pornography, leading to his cancellation before that was even a thing. It's little wonder that Lawrence made so many people uneasy. As a working class man writing about bodies, nature, spirituality and sexuality, He challenged social convention. Sons and Lovers takes a deep interest in women that feels unusual in a male writer even now. He bothers to notice how women are dismissed and undermined. Paul's first girlfriend, the otherworldly Miriam, is repeatedly humiliated by her brothers, but she remains determined to educate herself. His second lover, the married suffragette Clara, earns her living jennying lace. ''Is it sweated?'' Paul asks. ''Isn't all women's work?'' She answers. ''That's another trick men have played since we force ourselves onto the labour market.'' And then, of course, there's the passion. ''Sons and Lovers' is no Lady Chatterley. Thanks to his judicious editor, there was nothing to excite the senses. But it dares to take passion seriously.'' And I find the slow-burning account of Paul's relationships and his awakening hotter than any of today's much more explicit writing. D. H. Lawrence's Sons and Lovers is available as an audiobook with a running time of 16 hours and 31 minutes. It is narrated by Simon Vance. This article was adapted from an article in the Saturday Review Supplement of the Times, of Saturday, the 17th of February, 2024.
8: TNF Soundings. Features from across the UK.
7: Hello, this is Mary Buckley here to introduce a piece about the national charity Blind Veterans UK, outlining the help and support that's available to people who have served in the armed forces. We hear first from Alice at Blind Veterans UK who explains that the charity helps not just armed services regulars but those who have been called up for national service and who have lost their sight later in life. Next we hear from Jules who tells his story and how Blind Veterans has helped him and the positive impact on his life.
4: Hi my name's Alice and I'm from Blind Veterans UK formerly known as St. Dunstan's. We're a national charity that gives blind veterans the free rehabilitation, equipment, training and support they need to live independent lives. Our beneficiaries range from National Service veterans who lost their sight later in life due to age-related conditions to Iraq and Afghanistan veterans blinded on duty. It doesn't matter when a veteran served or how they lost their sight. We can help. We have a network of community support teams all over the UK who give blind veterans rehabilitation and training at home or in their local area, tailored to their individual wants and needs. We organise activities and events such as lunches, reunions and clubs which give our veterans the opportunity to be part of a community with a shared experience. We also support veterans to find new hobbies such as cooking, art and crafts or a new sport. I'm now going to hand over to one of our blind veterans, Jules, who is going to tell you about his journey with our charity.
9: Hi everyone, I'm Jules. I was in the Royal Military Police and when I left the army, I worked for a bank and then for a number of other different companies. During that time, my eyesight slowly deteriorated and my optician referred me to my local eye hospital. There, they registered me as severely visually impaired. From that point, my life really started going downhill. I struggled to find work, and I began to feel lonely, depressed, and helpless. The only help that I ever sought out was from my local vision charity. Luckily there, I found out about Blind Veterans UK. I started the very simple joining process, and because all they required was details of my service record and that of my visual impairment. And very soon, I was a member of Blind Veterans UK. I was amazed because I thought, well, I'm not really blind, and I'm not really a veteran. I thought that veterans had to have served in the Second World War or be in their 90s. But neither of these are true, and you certainly don't have to be totally blind. The charity began to rebuild my life. I met my support worker, and I immediately realized that I was not alone. He visited me at home and assessed different ways in which the charity could help me. And I was provided with lots of equipment. For example, I was given an electronic magnifier. And now I can read all my correspondence and any other documents I need to. Also, I was given an Amazon Echo device, which I use for my talking books, listening to the radio and getting any other information that I need, all just with the control of my voice. Then I went for an introduction week and my eyes were opened when I realized the possibilities and that I could be doing so much more with my life. I never thought that I would be able to use my computer again, but they taught me how I could do that. And now I can use the internet for all the different purposes that make up everyday life. I then started attending community events and met other blind veterans. For the first time for a long time in my life, I was meeting and making new friends. The charity has an amazing way of bonding veterans together, regardless of their age, their service background, or the level of their sight impairment. Blind Veterans UK has two residential centres where veterans can stay with their partners for activity weeks, training, or simply to have a holiday. The charity has had such an impact on my life And I would urge anybody who has served in the armed forces and is now struggling with their sight loss to join us. They will give you so much support in whatever way you need it. It comes in so many forms, social support, practical support, emotional support. Whatever you need, the charity is there to help you. I know a lot of veterans don't like asking for help. But when I did, it changed my life for the better, forever.
4: We know there are thousands of blind veterans out there who need our support. So if you or someone you know served in the armed forces, including National Service, and are now struggling with sight loss, then please get in touch by calling us on 0800 389 7979 or by visiting our website at blindveterans.org.uk forward slash get help.
8: TNF Soundings
0: TNF Soundings Features from across the UK
8: Hello, this is Alan with an article written by Heather about training staff to make leisure centres VI-friendly. A new partnership aims to tackle barriers to getting involved in sport and physical activity for the 2 million people in the UK living with sight loss. The partnership brings together national charity British Blind Sport and Places Leisure, a social enterprise that operates more than 80 leisure centres across England. Advice from British Blind Sport is being used to help make buildings and activities more accessible for blind or partially sighted people. The collaboration is part of the See Sport Differently campaign, funded by Sport England and jointly delivered by British Blind Sport and RNIB. Working with a major leisure centre operator is an important step forward because research for C-Sport Differently indicates that many visually impaired people feel excluded from sport and physical activities. The research shows that one in two visually impaired people feel that sight loss stops them exercising as much as they would like to and one in three say there are sports they want to try but haven't been able to. Findings also show that accessibility, confidence and cost are some of the key sporting barriers for those with sight loss. It is hoped that the new partnership between British Blind Sport and Places Leisure will start to break down some of these barriers. An initial ten workshops have already been delivered across five leisure centres, educating more than a hundred leisure centre staff. Sessions will now be rolled out nationwide, covering what it's like living with sight loss and some of the physical and psychological barriers at the leisure centre for visually impaired visitors. Top training tips include advice on communication, how to act as a sighted guide, improving venue layout and introducing tactile markings and contrasting colours. One of the trainers is Frankie Rowan, workforce officer at British Blind Sport, who is partially sighted herself. She said, Research shows that blind and partially sighted people are twice as likely to be inactive compared with people without sight loss, and leisure centre operators are ideally placed to help us change this. Leisure centres are based at the heart of communities, and they are a great place for us to start in terms of helping to break down any perceived barriers for those with sight loss. Frankie says she's enjoying working with Places Leisure, and she's keen to encourage more leisure centre operators to get involved.
0: TNF Soundings TNF Soundings Features from across the UK.
10: Now for a look at some of this coming week's radio highlights, starting with Saturday, February 24th. And we start with Bong, the condensed history of Big Ben. Originally broadcast in 2009, celebrating 150 years of time-telling, it can be heard again to mark the 100th anniversary of the first time the Bongs went national on BBC Airwaves. There's opportunities to tune in on Radio 4 Extra at either 7.15 in the morning, 12.15 at lunchtime or 6.15 in the evening. Also on Saturday, Greg Jenner is joined by historian Dr Gillian Stinchcombe and comedian Saria Asmat to learn all about the legendary Queen of Sheba. They look at the legends from Europe, Africa and the Middle East from 600 BC to today. That's your Dead to Me, Radio 4, Saturday morning, 10 o'clock. Drama on Radio 4 is Kane, a dramatisation of Gene Toomer's 1923 novel, a landmark in African-American literature. In opening lines at 2.45, John York looks at how the book was written at a critical period in US history, during the Great Migration, when many African-Americans moved from the South to the North. And the drama Kane follows at 3 o'clock on Radio 4. So opening lines 2.45, the drama Kane, 3 o'clock. You can hear a recent New York Metropolitan Opera House performance of Verdi's Un Bolo in Maschera, A Masked Ball, at 6.30 on Radio 3. The 1859 work is loosely based on real events that led to the assassination of Gustav III of Sweden in 1792, with Verdi developing the story of the personal tragedy of a ruler in love with his best friend's wife. And lastly for Saturday, dramatisation of the six Arnold Bennett novels following the inhabitants of Bursley and Five Towns between 1865 and 1903 continues. In Chinatowns, at nine o'clock Saturday evening, Radio 4, industrial action brings Bursley to a standstill. Sunday, February 25th, Lauren Laverne's guest on Desert Island Discs is movie costume designer Sandy Powell, the winner of three Oscars, 11.15, Radio 4. 3 Million is a new series exploring the story of the Bengal famine of 1943, in which at least 3 million people died. The series begins in 1942 as the Japanese sweep through Southeast Asia and Calcutta is inundated with hundreds of thousands of Allied soldiers. 1.30 for 3 Million, Radio 4, Sunday lunchtime. The drama on Radio 4 is Trishtam Shandy in development a comedy set in an audio drama workshop on a production of Laurence Stern's Tristram Shandy. The drama is on Radio 4 at three o'clock. And two more dramas follow at 7.30 tonight. Firstly, Radio 3, Terminal 3, celebrated Swedish playwright Lars Noren died in January 2021. Here Toby Swift directs Noren's 2006 play set in a hospital waiting room where a couple await the birth of their first child while another couple have been asked to identify the body of their son. Also at 7.30 put on Radio 4, the first episode of Jazzy Mew, The Sound of Us. When his best friend's relationship hits the rocks, musician Jazzy Mew sets out to write them the most romantic song ever to reignite their passion. Radio 4, 7.30 for Jazzy Mew. The Sound of Us. And lastly for Sunday, Slow Radio. In 2017, audio producer Phil Smith travelled to Ukraine to attend his friend's wedding. There he fell in love with the sound world of the sleeper train. Revisiting these recordings seven years later, the journey offers echoes of a Ukraine in calmer times. Slow Radio, Sleeper Train, Radio 3, 11.30pm. to programmes then that are broadcast each day at the same time same radio station. So each weekday, same time, same radio station. And Book of the Week is Ritual by Dimitri Zengalas. The first episode explores ritual across the animal kingdom and how its importance lasts a lifetime. Book of the Week, 9.45, Radio 4, every morning. Composer of the Week is Bedrick Spentana, 1824-1884. to 1884. Donald MacLeod explores his life and career following him as he grew from naive revolutionary into one of the most foundational figures in Czech music. Composer of the Week, every weekday, 12 noon, Radio 4. In the political butterfly effect, Jim Waterson explores each day, this week, a single moment that inadvertently shaped modern history. From Mr Blobby and the effect the failed theme park had on Morecambe to whether the loss of a handwritten note from Boris Johnson caused his 2016 Conservative leadership campaign to collapse and led to Theresa May becoming Prime Minister, tasked with negotiating Brexit. The Political Butterfly Effect, one hundred forty every day this week, Radio 4. What you can see from here, Mariana Leckie's bittersweet portrayal of small village life, continues in the Book of Bedtime, 10.45, every night, Radio 4. Alternatively, the essay, Moments of Being. Joanna Robertson celebrates the moments that shape, frame and colour our lives, on Radio 3, Every night, 10.45. On to the individual highlights then for the rest of the week, starting with Monday, February 26th. And Sabine, the Radio 4 drama continues. Ellie's been staying in Sabine's flat to pack up her things. But after finding some surprising evidence of her sister's room, Ellie's desperate to learn the identity of a mysterious individual only referred to as F. Sabine, 2.15, Radio 4, Monday afternoon. The Artificial Human this week asks, could AI swing an election? The programme looks at the AI tools that can be used to sow disinformation, shows how it already comes into play in different elections around the world and discovers how we can best arm ourselves from people who want to sway our votes and turn an election. The Artificial Human, 4.30, Monday afternoon, Radio 4. And Middlesbrough is one of the most deprived towns in England. David Baker, who grew up there in the 1970s, returns to ask what can be done to revive its fortunes. What can teach us about regenerating small, post-industrial towns? This week's analysis, Monday evening, 8.30, Radio 4. Tuesday, February 27th, in Young Again, Kirsty Young invites artist Grayson Perry to look back at his earlier years and consider what advice he would give to his younger self. Expect a lot of laughter and acute observation. 11am, Radio 4, Young Again. The afternoon concert features Brahms' first piano concerto on Tuesday, which is built on an epic scale with a brooding turbulent first movement that takes up almost half of the playing time. You can also hear, among others, Offenbach's Overture Bluebeard, Mozart's "Divamente in F and Duke Ellington's Harlem. The concert starts at 2 o'clock on Radio 3 on Tuesday afternoon. The drama on Radio 4 is A Czar in London, a tragi-comic taking on the months that Tsar Peter the Great spent in London learning about shipbuilding and naval tactics, destroying the house and garden of writer John Evelyn and roistering with actress Letitia Cross. 2.15, A Tsar in London, Radio 4. Also on Tuesday, a thorough examination with Doctors Chris and Sandy focuses on exercise. The twins meet their younger brother for a session on an exercise bike and discuss the importance of exercise for an aging society. 3.30, Radio 4. 8 o'clock on Radio 4, a Coal Town Mystery, in which File on 4 team investigate the historic use of coal miners' organs in research and look at whether permissions were sought. 8 o'clock, Radio 4, for a Coal Town Mystery. And of course it's followed by In Touch as it's a Tuesday with Peter White at 8.40, also on Radio 4. Wednesday, February 28th, more or less, the programme that explains and often debunks the numbers and statistics used in everyday life is on Radio 4 at 9 in the morning. In Lady Killers with Lucy Worsley, the historian this week delves into the case of 19-year-old Frieda Ward in Memphis, Tennessee in 1892 after a stormy and illicit relationship. The murder caused a nationwide sensation and influenced the way lesbians were perceived by the press and public for decades. Radio 4, 4 Lady Killers, 11.30, Wednesday morning. While well, in 2020, David Guttenmacher began to buy old photographs and videos in second-hand shops. Sad about the prospect families had lost their treasured memories, he begins to reconnect people with their personal archives. But it isn't always that straightforward. Sideways, with Matthew Syed, is on Radio 4, at four o'clock on Wednesday afternoon. Thursday, February 29th, and a dramatisation of W Somerset's Maugham's 1944 novel, The Razor's Edge, in which a war veteran travels to Paris on a spiritual quest to find some answers. Part one is on Radio 4 Extra at ten in the morning or three in the afternoon, and concluding at the same time on Friday. Back to Thursday and The Listening Room is the afternoon drama. True stories of five people whose lives have been turned upside down through being perpetrators or victims of violent crimes, in their own words. The drama is on at 2.15 on Radio 4. Followed by Claire Balding's ramblings and this week she joins a walk on a winter's night with no torches crossing the South Downs close to the East Sussex town of Seaford. Her guide is Caroline Whiteman who began these walks as an experiment in overcoming her fear of the dark. Join Claire and her companions at three o'clock on Radio 4 for ramblings. Roger Allam and Joanna Lumley start in the very funny conversations from a long marriage and this week tension mounts as the internet goes down. You can hear it on Radio 4 at 6.30. Radio 3 in concert, which has been described as one of the most majestic and moving experiences in all of romantic art, Bruckner's Ninth Symphony. The live concert starts at 7.30 on Radio 3. Lastly Friday, March 1st, another new month. In Room 101 with Paul Merton, comedian Desiree Birch attempts to banish her pet hates standing, sexting, and underdone British bacon. 11.30 in the morning, Radio 4. Drama, Love and Other Lies continues. Josie and Tyler are now working as a money mule for the catfishers. Then the police, who are onto the gang, call Josie in for an interview. 2.15, Friday afternoon, Radio 4. And finally, for the week... And Friday, 9pm, comes a Classic FM exclusive with a rare insight into the world of the New Zealand-born soprano Kiri Takanoa, ahead of her 80th birthday on March 6th. It includes an interview with Alla Jones and recorded performances with music by Cantaloupe and Mozart. Dame Kiri Takanoa, at 80. Classic FM, 9 o'clock, Friday evening. And it does continue on Saturday as well at the same time. That's it. Thank you so much to Angela for the highlights this week. May I wish you a peaceful, safe, and enjoyable week of radio listening.
11: Hello, this is Helen from Wharfdale Talking News with Val's selection of audio described TV programmes starting Saturday, the 24th of February to Friday, the 1st of March 2024. Let's see what we can find that might interest you this week. We start with Saturday, the 24th of February. The Bake Off judge shares recipes, advice and culinary hacks in a new 10-part series of Leith's Cotswold Kitchen on ITV1 at 11.40am. If you missed it last Tuesday, there's another chance to visit Morecambe Bay and Ormskirk when the hairy bikers go west on BBC2 at 12 noon. A row between birdwatchers in Midsummer in the Marsh turns nasty when the president of their society is killed Midsummer Murders is on ITV3 at 4.50pm. Lee Mack introduces the game show where 100 contestants set out to answer increasingly difficult logic problems. There's a top prize of £100,000 for those who can correctly answer a mind-bending question that only 1% of the population were able to solve. The 1% Club is on ITV1 at 8.35pm. Stevie's demons catch up with her and Paige's career prospects hang in the balance into tonight's episode of the hospital drama Casualty on BBC One at 9.10pm. Now on to Sunday the 25th of February. Sunday with Laura Coonsberg, featuring interviews with politicians and key public figures is on BBC One at 9am. The epic romantic drama *Doctor Zhivago*, starring Omar Sharif and Julie Christie, is the afternoon film on BBC Two at two p.m. In the quarter final, the remaining potters make vintage-style water filters to fire in their own oil drum kilns. The Great Pottery Throwdown is on Channel Four at seven forty-five p.m. Rosalind oversees the care of a teenage mum and uncovers a disturbing truth in tonight's episode of Call the Midwife, on BBC One at 8. Have you ever wondered how paint and wallpaper are produced? Find out when Greg Wallace visits the Farrow and Ball factory in tonight's episode of Inside the Factory, at 8pm, on BBC Two. After an island-wide blackout causes havoc, the team trace the source to a local substation and discover an electrocuted dead body. Death in Paradise is on BBC One at 9pm. Although not audio described, you may enjoy listening to the jazz and blues singer Nina Simone in a concert first broadcast in 2019. BBC Prom's Homage to Nina Simone is on BBC Four at 10 past nine. Here are those programmes which are on at the same time throughout the week. Animal Park is at 1045 45. Homes Under the Hammer is at 11.15. Bargain Hunt is at 12.15. Doctors is at 1.45, but not on Friday. Escape to the Country is at 3pm Monday to Thursday and 3.15 on Friday. And The Repair Shop is at 3.45pm. All these programmes are on BBC One. Dickinson's Real Deal is on ITV1 at 2pm Monday to Friday. Rick Stein's Food Stories is on BBC Two at 6.30 Monday to Thursday and at 5.45 on Friday. Frozen Planet is on BBC Four at 7pm Tuesday to Thursday. There are two episodes of Heartbeat on ITV3 at 5.55 and 6.55 Monday to Friday. Let's see what's on offer for Monday the 26th of February. It's time to test your knowledge again in Mastermind at 7.30 and University Challenge at 8.30, both on BBC Two. West Yorkshire solicitor Dawn is transforming her local village shop into a home in the first episode of a new series of George Clarke's Remarkable Renovations on Channel 4 at 8pm. Several choices at 9 tonight. Dee and Jeff try to find Owen in the second episode of the drama The Way on BBC One at 9. In the final part of this documentary series, families recall the day in 2003 when the space shuttle Columbia broke apart and they returned to homes they had decorated to welcome back loved ones. The space shuttle that fell to Earth is on BBC Two at 9. In this legal experiment, Actress recreates a real-life murder trial from the original transcripts in front of two juries made up of ordinary people. But will they reach the same verdict? Find out in the first episode of The Jury Murder Trial on Channel 4 at 9. Parts 2 to 4 are on at the same time, Tuesday to Thursday. Dante is rocked by a ghost from his past in the last episode of the current series of Waterloo Road, on BBC one at ten forty tonight. Moving on to Tuesday the twenty seventh of February. Cy King and Dave Myers explore Merseyside and the Wirral in the Hairy Bikers Go West on BBC two at seven PM tonight. The two juries hear from the defence in the second part of the Jury Murder Trial at nine PM on Channel four. Another well structured walk and talk. Tonight, the comedian Bill Bailey is on the Essex-Suffolk border with veteran broadcaster Sir Trevor MacDonald. Perfect Pub Walks with Bill Bailey is on More 4 at 9pm. It's the last day living together in the world for the three pairs of comedians as they go all out to prove they can survive in a post-apocalyptic world. David Mitchell's Outsiders is on BBC Two at 9.45pm. On to Wednesday, the 28th of February. The actors head to Birmingham to battle it out on the set of Peaky Blinders. But who will be crowned Actor of the Week? Find out in Bring the Drama on BBC Two at 9pm. Tonight is the turn of the prosecution to cross-examine the defendant in The Jury Murder Trial on Channel 4 at 9. Anthony Hopkins is the proud elderly man in suffering increasing confusion while Olivia Coleman is the daughter, trying to balance love and care with her own life needs in tonight's film, The Father, on Film 4 at 9pm. Jack and Alice meet again, but their joy is cut short by news that forces them to reevaluate what they're doing with their lives. The drama, Alice and Jack, is on Channel 4 at 10pm. As I'm sure you all know, 2024 is a leap year. So today we're looking at Thursday the 29th of February. Another set of budding entrepreneurs seek investment from the experts in Dragon's Den at 8pm on BBC One. Monty visits a variety of gardens in Majorca, the Costa del Sol and Seville in tonight's episode of Monty Don's Spanish Gardens on BBC Two at 8pm. Two teenage brothers need a peacekeeper. But is Q chihuahua cross Maggie the kind of canine they're after? Find out in The Doghouse on Channel 4 at 8pm. In a new documentary series, the writer, rapper and social commentator Darren McGarvey turns his attention to the country's public services, beginning with the flaws in Britain's criminal justice system. Darren McGarvey, The State We're In, is on BBC Two at 9pm. The prosecution and defence give their closing speeches and the juries retire to consider their verdicts. What verdicts will be delivered and will they be the same? Find out in the final episode of The Jury Murder Trial on Channel 4 at 9. Alice and Jack's relationship has survived everything thrown their way, but can love now conquer all? The final episode of the drama Alice and Jack is on Channel 4 at 10pm. Finally, we come to Friday the 1st of March. The sleuthing priest is determined to unmask a mortal being when a supposed vampire takes a life in Kembleford. Father Brown is on BBC One at one forty-five pm Cherry is going shopping for a wedding dress and Robin considers buying a disused munitions factory in Bulgaria. The sitcom Here We Go is on BBC One at 8.30pm. Martin Compton and his friend, Phil McHugh, head to Bergen on the west coast, where they join in Norway's National Day Parade and celebrate with the city's Scottish society. Martin Compton's Norwegian Fling is on BBC Two at 10pm. We end the week with a drama based on a true story. The holiday of a lifetime in Thailand turns into a nightmare for a family separated by the deadly 2004 Boxing Day tsunami. The film The Impossible is on BBC Two at 5 past 11. I hope you find something of interest this week.
8: TNF Soundings